This morning I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. So we continue our study there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 together and we'll see very quickly the theme of grace appearing throughout the whole of the text at the heart of this scripture as is the case with just about all of the Apostle Paul's teachings is a desire for you to know the grace of God, a desire that you would know the grace of God. So please follow along with me. We're reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1 through verse 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning that is gracious, abundant, and sufficient provision for us today. I pray that you would work by your word and spirit in our midst the sure, compelling, beautiful, saving, sanctifying, keeping work of your grace. Thank you, Lord. We await your work in us by faith as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, is one that is about a collection, a collection by the Corinthian church, an observation of a collection by a Macedonian church, and it seems to come out of nowhere as we're working our way through 2 Corinthians, but it didn't. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of an ongoing relationship and conversation, the context between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians. Let us remember that 2 Corinthians is written within the, this 
context. It's actually at least the third letter that has been written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And there's a history of this collection that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that is, uh, goes actually all the way back to the first letter of Corinthians. We have in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, you see, it's talking about this collection. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so now you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there may be no collecting when I come. You see, what the Apostle Paul had done is he's established a practice among a number of the churches that he planted to take a collection for the believers in Jerusalem who are experiencing hardship due to persecution and famine. The Apostle Paul had sort of established a practice. And that practice was established during the course of his first ministry among them and in his direction as he sends them the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, between the letter of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that we have, there's actually this middle letter, what's actually the second letter to the Corinthians, a letter in which the Apostle Paul addresses a controversy that was taking place among the church in Corinth. And it turns out that the controversy that was taking place in Corinth had interrupted their continuing in this collection that was to take place on the first day of the week, every week, so that when Apostle Paul comes, he doesn't have to take a collection, but rather can simply have the collection that has already been made over the course of time to bring to the church in Jerusalem. The idea of generosity is not a new one to the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians. But the idea of generosity toward believers, particularly those who are impoverished, is not a new idea to Paul at all. And it didn't originate originally even with Paul. It was a part of his original commission as he was of his apostleship as he was recognized by the other leaders of the church when he visited Jerusalem. He makes note of this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It'd be a good passage to write in the margin of your Bible if you're looking for a bit of context for this passage in 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says this. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They asked the Apostle Paul in all of his gospel proclamation, wherever he went, to remember the poor. And this is what Paul does. What's fascinating is is it says that it's what he was eager to do. And this is a point of contrast between the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul here. He was eager to make this collection as he planted the church for the, the church that was impoverished in Jerusalem. He was not only eager to do it, he actually did it. He implemented what was his desire. That is a, a bit of a contrast between the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul. As Paul goes to the Gentile world and establishes the church, the the request of the apostles who are continuing the ministry among the Jewish regions asked Paul to remember the poor. 
There's an opportunity for the church among the Gentiles to demonstrate a unity in Christ by remembering the poverty and the persecution that had been experienced among the churches in Judea. Let's remember that the central to the purpose of the power of grace is that it brings those who are far off near. And that makes one people out of the Jewish and the Gentile people. And this collection for the poor is one of the ways that they demonstrate that these, this is one church, one new people together out of the two. Now that also comes in a context. In Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says this, Romans 15 verses 25 through 27, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So this is after the Apostle Paul has been successful in making these collections as he goes around to the churches. And now he's explaining to the Romans that he's bringing aid to the saints in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they are pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now that is a powerful word of unity. The Gentile churches are are called to share in the physical poverty of the church in Jerusalem, even as the church in Jerusalem sends missionaries to bring the Gentiles out of their spiritual poverty and lostness. Now, this is the context in which we meet 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They have begun to make a collection for the impoverished church in Jerusalem, but the controversy in Corinth had stalled the gift. This is where we find ourselves. I hope you see the context in which this is seated. Now, if you look, as we begin to look at our passage today, you'll see very quickly that the, Apostles Paul goal, uh, the Apostle Paul's goal in the passage is that you would know grace. Look at verse 1 with me. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This is always Paul's aim, everywhere he goes. His proclamation is gospel proclamation about the grace of God. He wants to know the church to know about God's grace. It's it's true that Paul wants them to know about the grace of God for salvation, but he also wants them to see that the grace of God works itself out in the life of the believer. Do you hear that? The grace of God is for salvation, the grace of God alone. But the grace of God is the grace of God that works itself out in the life of the church. It is the nature of God's grace that he not only brings salvation, but he continues to work within us to grow us up in grace. So in order to come to know grace, the first thing the Apostle Paul does is he calls us to know something about the Macedonians. So let us examine the Macedonians, that we too might come to know the grace of God that's been given to them. And there are four things that we're going to see about the Macedonians. The first is this. The Macedonians gave as a result of grace. Look at it again. Verse 1. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. The Macedonians gave, but their gift, their act of grace, as it's later called, is in response to the grace that has been given to them. In response to the grace that is at work among them and in them, the nature and power of the grace of God is that in the face of affliction, they would overflow in generosity. Such is the measure of grace that it has been given to the Macedonians, that they would overflow in generosity in the context of affliction. The Macedonians' gift for the church is the result of God's gift of grace working among them. This must be so. For who truly gives out of affliction? Who gives out of poverty? But a person in whom a greater gift has been given, the grace of God. Now, I'm holding something in my mind about the reality of grace that I want you also to hold in your mind as we work our way through this passage, that grace is... By definition, a gift. Okay, hold that in your mind. It's by definition, a gift. So the whole time that we're talking about giving, that we're talking about generosity, we're actually talking about grace. We're talking about God's grace among the Macedonians and among the Corinthians that's overflowing in grace through generosity among the churches. The whole time we're talking about grace. Now, while it's true that the Macedonians gave as a result of grace, I just even before we go, I hope you I hope you see that. The gift, the grace of the Macedonians to overflow into generosity for the collection for the church in Jerusalem was not a spontaneous happening of the goodwill of the Macedonian people. It was a compelled happening because of the grace of God at work among them. We know that because we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches. Not the grace of the Macedonians. The grace of God. The second thing that we see about the Macedonians is the Macedonians' gift is a sort of faith check. That sort of language was given to me a number of years ago. The idea that the testing of our faith is a sort of faith check for ourselves to see faith at work within us by grace. The idea of testing of our faith is, is a prevalent one throughout the Scriptures. I would particularly draw your attention to 1 Peter. Look, read the first verses of, that, of 1 Peter chapter 1 to investigate more fully this idea of the testing of our faith. The idea is that there are moments of trial in which our faith is both refined and shown to be genuine. A testing of of our faith is not merely something that we pass or fail. The testing itself causes us to pass. It refines. It does the work of refining so that we are proved genuine. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
The context is a test of affliction. To pass is to continue in a wealth of generosity. The generosity was the overflow of two things. Now, when I'm putting together, uh, trying to cook up, you might say, uh, the wealth of generosity, as I'm thinking about that, as I'm putting the ingredients together to see a people overflow in a wealth of generosity, I don't choose the same two ingredients that God chooses, but look at what he does. He chooses two ingredients that produce this beautiful overflow of wealth of generosity in the context of a test of affliction. You might call that the fire underneath of the pot. He throws in the two ingredients of an abundance of joy. That's not a surprise when you've been given the grace of God that you would have abundance of joy. And the second ingredient is their extreme poverty. When you put together an abundance of joy and extreme poverty in a test of affliction and boil it together in the context of God's grace, a wealth of generosity is what overflows. Friends, that doesn't sound like the ingredients for a wealth of generosity to me, but if you look at the nature of the way that God works in history and through the scriptures, you'll see that's what he does. In fact, the gospel itself is that very thing. What is this grace, this wealth of generosity of our God that overflows in the life of the resurrection? What is the ingredient that goes into that but the suffering of the Savior who made himself poor for us? And that cooks together in the, in the fires of affliction and beautiful generosity overflows the greatest generosity, which is the grace of our God in his gospel. Their generosity becomes to them an evidence of God's grace in their own soul. That's the faith check. This evidence of grace that's working becomes an example, not to the souls of other people, but to the souls of the Macedonians themselves. The Lord God is clearly at work among us because it's not normally joy and an impoverished circumstance that overflows in generosity like this. Certainly God's grace is working on our souls. Our obedience, repentance, transformation, and generosity are all evidences to our own souls that God's grace is at work among us. This is the faith check. The third thing that we see about the Macedonians is the Macedonians' gift is a favor to the Macedonians. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The Macedonians gave according to their means, but it wasn't a simple financial transaction. In fact, money isn't even mentioned in the passage once. This passage is not about a financial transaction. This passage is about a gift of grace. Their gift was truly an overflow of grace and not a simple overflow of financial means because their gift itself began as an overflow beyond their means. Their gift was truly an overflow of grace. 
There was a genuine joy and an opportunity for which the Macedonian church longed to participate. And they said, Paul, we're not going to let you rob us of the opportunity to overflow in generosity just because we're poor. Just because we don't have means doesn't mean that we don't have grace at work within us. Give us the joy of generosity. They literally considered it a favor to give. And they begged, literally it says, begged us earnestly for the opportunity. And the fourth thing that we see about the Macedonians is they gave themselves first to the Lord. Look at verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The Macedonians' gift was not simply to meet the expectations of Paul. They didn't just hear that Paul wanted to make a collection, and so they did. They did their very best. They didn't just calculate practically that technically Though they are impoverished, they're not as impoverished as the saints in Jerusalem. And so it was a a simple practical endeavor of fairness. This was, first and foremost, and thoroughgoingly, an act of worship. The people in Macedonia gave a gift to the Lord. Because they were overflowing in the gift that the Lord had given them. It is generosity, true generosity, is an act of worship. It was out of gratitude for God that they were inclined to give for the sake of the Lord. Now, this is the Macedonians. Now, let's take a moment to examine the Corinthians. And we have some wonderful things to observe. If you go down to verse 7, you see it says, But as you excel in everything, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, he's praising, giving encouragement. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, it's fascinating that they excel in speech, faith, knowledge, and earnestness, and in our love for you. Not necessarily in their love that's overflowing for Paul, though we saw last week that it is there, One of the things that they overflow with is that the Apostle Paul and those who are ministering among the Corinthians love them. What a thing to overflow with. You excel in everything. And what follows is really a list of spiritual gifts. The Corinthians took a great deal of pride in external spiritual gifts. You can see that if you read 1 Corinthians. It was actually a bit of a problem. So much so that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, he says this, If I could speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I was greatly spiritually gifted, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Paul is not disputing the reality of grace at work By the Spirit of God among the Corinthians. In fact, he says, you excel in these things, in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness. But he is simply calling them not to neglect the fullness of the Spirit's gift. That is the grace of God at work in them. Excel in this grace also, he says, Walk in the gift that has been given. You have received the gift of generosity if you have received the grace of God. 
Now walk in it like you walk in the rest. Generosity is the work of the Spirit in the Corinthians. But thus far, that gift has had very little evidence among them. Scott Hafeman, who has been very helpful in, as a commentator walking through 2 Corinthians, he says this, Excelling in spiritual gifts grounds and necessitates excelling in giving. It grounds and necessitates excelling in giving. The gift of the Spirit is this transformative means by which we are able to overflow in sacrificial grace. But a lack of genuine generosity ought to cause us to ask if we are some sort of spiritual hoarder. Yes, we've been given spiritual gifts, but we think that we possess them for our own benefit, that we would hoard them to ourselves. We think we possess these gifts, but in reality, to truly possess spiritual gifts is not to accumulate them like trophies on a shelf. To truly possess spiritual gifts is to leverage them for others, like Jesus, who gave the gift of the Spirit to us in the first place. The Spirit himself, the source and center of all spiritual gifts, including generosity, is himself grace to us, the gift of God to the people of God. The heart and purpose of this passage so far is found in the words, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. The theme of the passage is not a theme of laying out the need for generosity. The theme of the passage is the reality of the generosity of God. Do you catch that? Where does Paul go when he's trying to convince the Corinthians that they they really need to walk in generosity. He doesn't go to all the suffering in Jerusalem if they don't give. This is not a mere practical transaction. The theme of the passage is to remember the generosity of God, to situate us not in the context of our poverty, but to situate us in the context of our abundance of grace from God. We often speak of the fact that it is out of a heart overflowing with gratitude that we walk in generosity. Generosity is so deeply, intimately tied to the gospel. Grace is literally meaning gift. So grace itself is generosity. We excel in giving because we excel as recipients of grace. Overflowing as recipients of grace. I would ask us to notice three things thus far. Our generosity is a result of the grace of God in us. Our generosity, secondly, is the means by which we give ourselves to God. And third, the grace and worship interplay between God and the church results in generous provision and unity between believers in the church. The grace interplay between God's giving of grace and our worship of him is the way that God provides for one another. What a beautiful design. The design itself is a gift from God. 
And we're going to move very quickly through the second half of this passage where we, the focus is on love that is genuine. If you look at verse 8, it says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by your earnestness, by the earnestness of others, that your love is also genuine. Paul's instruction is to make a collection for Jerusalem. But that instruction is not a direct command from Jesus. But for Paul, it is a clear and necessary application. I think this is important. The collection itself is not the command of Jesus. Generosity is. What Paul sees as an application of the broader reality of gratitude and generosity is essential to truly understanding the gospel. And that's Paul's concern. Do these people in Corinth understand the nature of grace? If they do, they will understand gratitude and generosity. I think it's notable how Paul distinguishes carefully, and this isn't the only time he does this, between when he's preaching and, and when he's shepherding the church, he distinguishes between the explicit teaching and command of Jesus and what he himself is teaching as an implication of Jesus' authority in a particular context, in a particular church. Now, Paul gives command. Here he says, I say this not as a command, in other words, not as the very command of Jesus to make this collection, but he does give a a very clear instruction, a very clear command here and elsewhere about the collection. Paul's command for generosity stands upon his apostolic authority to direct the church both in the gospel itself and in its implications for our lives. Generosity by the church is not the gospel. And Paul's a gospel proclaimer. He wants to be clear about what is the gospel and what is not. But generosity at work in the church is a necessary, essential implication of the gospel. It is an implication that will take place among the people of God who have received the grace of God. And that means that the church ought to examine themselves for a genuineness of faith. Paul sees in generosity, earnestness, and and follow-through among the Macedonians what he would expect to see among the Corinthians as well if they truly shared in a common grace of the gospel. That's why he uses them as an example. So what's he doing? He's giving two examples. He's giving the Macedonians as an example of a people who understand grace. And then he turns in verse 9 to Jesus himself. And what we see in verse 9 is generosity incarnate is the crux of Paul's argument. Look at verse 9 with me. Sometimes when you're reading a passage, there is a verse that seems to really say what the whole passage is driving at. And this is it. I encourage you, underline it. Put a cross beside it because it's such a great gospel proclamation. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You know. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting. That's a benediction. Typically, the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You all know it already. 
he says. You know it. His intention is that you would know grace. And and you know the details of it, right? That he was rich and became poor. That by his poverty, you might become rich. This verse has the incarnation in view. We could go to Philippians chapter 2. You go to this verse every week. I think we have recently. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The Philippians passage continues by reminding us of the degree of Jesus' condescension that he was willing, willingly went and obeyed unto death on a cross. This is the nature of grace. This is the nature of the gospel. You, you cannot claim to understand grace and be a recipient of grace if you do not cherish the way of Christ in his work of incarnation and sacrifice. Now, I love how the first chapter of Ephesians particularly just overflows with words that herald the generosity of Jesus, much like, first, much like Philippians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it's just one example in that first chapter of Ephesians. It says this, In him, that is in Christ, in Jesus, We have redemption through his blood. And he explains what he means by that. The forgiveness of our trespasses. All of this we have according to the riches of his grace. And how did we receive the riches? What did it look like when a people received forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of God's grace? How rich is it? What does it look like when it comes upon us? Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Man, I I just, when I think of lavish, I think of Thanksgiving morning. And I think of a a whole bunch of potatoes and you just lavish it with too much gravy. All right? It's overflowing. It's not just like in the little bitty pool in the middle of the potatoes. That stuff overflows and you know it's just too much and it's too rich lavished upon us out of riches of grace. This is what he gave. And what he gave, his grace, was his to keep. They were his riches. But he lavished them upon us as a gift of grace. Do we understand that? Do we understand grace? Do we understand the gospel? We are sinners, truly lost in spiritual depravity. We've rejected the way of our God and His righteous judgment. He has tossed us out of His glorious kingdom with all of its riches. But Jesus, God the Son, left the glory of heaven to dwell among sinners like us outside the camp. More than that, he suffered the judgment of God upon sinners in our place outside 
the camp. He did this that we might again be restored to fellowship with God in his glorious kingdom. And that is the gift of grace. This is the gift that he lavished upon us to take a people who were unworthy and undeserving rebels and restore us to the grace of the kingdom in fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The generosity and sacrifice of Jesus has forgiven and cleansed the sin of all who repent and believe so that we might enter the joy of fellowship with God, the glory of abundant life in his kingdom forever. The example of Jesus is motivational. It compels. But there's a difference between Jesus and ourselves. His generosity does not His generosity actually saves. You see, Jesus was not our peer. He condescended to come alongside of us. And in coming alongside of us, he makes us peers together so that we might share in generosity and grace together because his grace came down. His grace actually saves that we might simply walk in it. Now, it's fascinating. In verse 10, Paul comes to his conclusion. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. Corinth, this generosity that I'm calling you to, he says, it's a good idea for you. Paul concludes that this giving is advantageous to the Corinthians, in the same way that the Macedonians said, we want the favor of generosity. It's going to be good for you too. That, that you might see among yourselves the reality of God's grace working in you what only God's grace can work. In verse 11, he gives the explicit command to complete the collection out of what you have. It's an important qualifier It's a compeller and a qualifier. It compels you because you know you have it. And it qualifies because it's not asking for something that you don't have to give. It's really a simple command and qualifier. Now the passage ends with this beautiful recollection in verse 15 as it is written. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's a calling back to remember the manna in the wilderness, the bread that was given by God as provision for the people of God for their life and sustenance and their peace in the wilderness. Was the bread owed them? Did they make the bread? Did they have the right to be hoarders of the bread? Or was the bread a gift of grace and to eat it To partake in it would require an understanding that the bread that was given to them in the wilderness requires an understanding of the grace of God. This is the same story for you and I today. That generosity is actually for the benefit not only of the one who receives the gift, but also of the one who gives the gift. It demonstrates That's not a new idea. It's actually quite Hallmark, right? It's not just that you get the joy of giving. It's that you get the joy of knowing that the grace of God is at work in you. God is present in the church. 
That's true joy. It demonstrates to our own souls that God is at work in us. It reminds us that we are recipients of grace. And it becomes to us a means by which we may give to God. God provides for us everything that we need for worship. I'm reminded of the definition of love that we were quoted last week from John Piper. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. Now, we'll give more on generosity in the coming weeks as we spend more time in 2 Corinthians. But for now, I would encourage you to three things as we close. The first is consider where you have seen generosity in your life. First, in the grace of Jesus. Spend time this week reflecting upon the grace of Jesus at work in your life. And then consider the work of grace and generosity and the work of the people around you. Who are Macedonian-like around you? I know for myself, there was a woman, I don't even know her name, but we had friends who were ministers of the gospel and they, they did work in a nursing home. And she gave $5 every week to my family as we were experiencing poverty. $5 to my family, and my mom told her every time we received it that she gave it to me to enjoy myself a little bit. And when I would spend that $5 on two games of bowling and two fifty worth of quarters for the arcade, I gave thanks every single time to the grace of God that that woman was to me. A simple thing, a small thing, but a reminder of the work of grace for a woman in a nursing home to give to my family. Consider who is Macedonian-like that might compel you to remember the grace of Jesus. Second, consider how you've seen generosity at work in your own life. Let, let that be serve as a face, faith check for you. Examine your life for generosity, that it might serve as an encouragement that the spirit of grace is at work in you. And if you find it lacking, beat yourself up and figure out some way to be better, right? Isn't that the whole point of grace? No. Do the first step again. Remember the grace of Christ. Go to him. Remember, search, read, repent, and believe in the grace of God. And he will work in the people of God. The third application is very specific to Cross Point Coast. I think it is a way that the elders are trying to lead the church. Joyce Rep has been working on a global mission page. You heard Joel pray for the, our global mission partnerships in his prayer of confession earlier. This is a part of the way that Cross Point Coast may participate in generosity together. On that global mission page, in our first version of it, it will be ready by the end of the week. We'll send out a link to it. It'll be something along the lines of cpcoast.com slash global mission. You should see that by the end of the week here. On it, we have posted global mission partners that the elders have have partnered with already. You know many of them, whether it's the, the Mentons and Forever Mercy or Grace Point Church or the other Cross Point congregations, particularly the church plants or Bayfront Village or WeGo these, or, or InterVarsity. These are 
partners that we've been partnered with for really quite some time. And the idea is that as we post those, that you would have a connection, a means by which to examine your heart and ask if this is a place for you to be connected in generosity. Practically and functionally at Cross Point Coast, we do make a collection every week on Sunday morning, but that collection is by and large for the ongoing work of this particular church plant. Well, we do use a portion of it in Acts 29 uh, church planting ministry, as well as to support these other global missionaries. But one of the things that we want to encourage the church to do is connect directly with those who are laboring in gospel ministry, and to do so during, via that website, if it would serve you well, and that you would make contribution there. And remember that that contribution is a contribution of generosity. And you notice I haven't used the word money yet that you would connect with them, that you would know their story, that you would text them and, and, and call them and email them and remain in contact to encourage the work of gospel proclamation around the world. Would you consider these three things? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know your grace. That itself is a gift, that we know of the gift of grace. We pray that your spirit would work among our church, that we would excel in this also. We thank you for the ways that we've already seen this, and it, it, it encourages our soul. It is a favor to us to see generosity rising up among us because this isn't to our praise. This is the pray, to the praise of the God who is transforming us by your grace. May you be worshipped as your church walks in unity together in this way. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of the grace giver, Jesus Christ. Amen.